inventors and their inventions. Welcome to Radio Cade, a podcast from the Cade Museum for Creativity and Invention in Gainesville, Florida. The museum is named after James Robert Cade, who invented Gatorade in 1965. My name is Richard Miles. We'll introduce you to inventors and the things that motivate them. We'll learn about their personal stories, how their inventions work, and how their ideas get from the laboratory to the marketplace. I'm going to call HR. If you work for any size company, that sentence has the appeal of I'm going to tell your mom. But it turns out HR has a fun, sexy side. I'm your host, Richard Miles. And today we will be talking about how much fun it is with Jeff Lyons, founder of a company called MindSolve and currently the Senior Vice President of Global Professional Services at SumTotal. Welcome to the show, Jeff. Thanks, Richard. Excited to be here. So, Jeff, when I look up fun and sexy in dictionary, there's a picture of you, right? Uh, definitely, and, and HR as well. <laughs> I also forgot to mention, actually, the pinnacle of your professional career has been serving as a board member on the Kid Museum, right? It's pretty yes. much downhill from here. Yes, thank you. So normally, we're talking about topics that are unfamiliar to a lot of people's advanced medical technologies, engineering marvels, that sort of stuff. Today, we'll be talking about something that actually most people understand pretty well, performance evaluations, training, skills management. But let's talk about, first of all, how those things in an organization can be a problem, or at least what was the problem you saw in organizational process, and what was the solution that you came up with? So the first thing I should say is that the core technology that MindSolve took to market was not something that I came up with or, or that the folks at MindSolve really came up with. It was the brainchild of a guy named Harold Fethi, who ran the HR function at a pharmaceutical research firm in Palo Alto. And so what was interesting was the problem there was unique because he's trying to do performance assessment with a company full of PhDs that are going to argue with any kind of measurement model or metric or calculation you can put in front of them. What year are we talking about, Jeff, roughly? Uh, this was 95, 96. Okay, got it. Um, so sort of just prior to the founding of MindSolve. And so it was an idea that Harold had, and then we helped develop the technology and then licensed to take that to market. And so what is the problem in principle that you were trying to solve? So the main problem is how do we evaluate employee performance in a way that's relevant and in a way that has a lot of quality in the data where you can make solid decisions on it, but in a way that's also easy. Performance appraisal, as you said, everybody's familiar with it. Universally, everybody hates it. It doesn't matter what you do. You're never the popular guy walking into the building when it's performance appraisal time. But I think we actually did come up with a way to make it pretty sexy and pretty easy. And at Alza, because they had a very high bar for data quality and for a robust measurement metric behind everything, that was challenging to do in a way that was fun and easy. And Harold had an idea of doing a, a visual ranking. And I hope talking with my hands on the podcast comes through. <laughs> it's I, very effective. You could yeah. describe this to our <laughs> listeners. But a way of doing just a very simple drag and drop stack ranking on a screen and took Alza from a, a process that had very high data quality and was well respected, but was miserable and onerous and people would do over the weekend with a case of beer and complain about it to something that, that people were finishing very quickly on time, not 
only felt good about the validity, but it was easy to do. And that helped also make it well received. And so that translated very well to a broader audience that wasn't a company full of PhDs. And that's what helped grow the company. Instead of a long series of questions, for instance, like, is this employee good at X, Y, and Z? It would be more of a graphical interface or... Exactly. Okay. So what Alza was coming from was an idea called paired comparison, which has a lot of data validity. And you build up a data model by comparing A to B and then B to C and then C to A and kind of making these one-by-one paired comparisons. And so the psychometrics behind that are great, but people are pretty skeptical and it's a hugely painful exercise. Normal performance appraisal looks at every employee one at a time and you just do like a one to five ranking on a bunch of questions and people try to make it better by asking more questions. And there's a lot of counterintuitive stuff. You get better data up till about eight or nine factors or questions. After that, your data quality drops way, way off the more questions you ask because people get tired of it and they just start Christmas training. So this was a way, instead of doing each employee one at a time, we would take your whole team, put them on screen and say, let's talk about communication skill. Put your best communicator at the top, worst communicator at the bottom, kind of rank people in there. And then we'll look at decision making and self-management. And we ended up with about five criteria for most employees. And I think we added two or three extra for managers. So it was very simple, very fast, but we did a lot of work to look at the data quality and we ended up with very, very good decision quality coming out of the exercise. That's fascinating. I wish they had had that when I was in the federal government, which is probably the worst possible example for performance evaluations. But I remember in the Army, they had a problem with the officer evaluations in that there were really only two types of officer evaluations. One, you're the next Dwight D. Eisenhower and you should be promoted immediately. (laughs) And the other one is you're basically a traitor to your country and you should be taken out (laughs) shot. There's nothing in between. And then the the way the Army saw that problem is it sounds like something similar. What they started doing is they started putting, I think they called it a diamond. And it was after you'd gone through all this verbiage of how wonderful this person was, you were forced to say, well, this person is among the top 5% of officers I've ever commanded and so on. And the second and third tier. But then they would add a a reality check and that they, you could then check what your average was. So you kind of knew that this raider was full of it because he gave everybody a top diamond or whatever, something like that. Is this something similar in principle to where you're sort of forcing an accountability so that you can't just go on and on about somebody's qualities without comparing them to something? Is that kind of it in principle? You've hit on a lot of really, really dense stuff. There's a lot of psychometrics wrapped up in what you just said. So the first is, yeah, if you evaluate people on a 10-point scale, you might have one person who rates his employees all eights, nines, and tens. And then you have another person, especially in a room full of PhDs, who's just much more critical, nobody's perfect, and he rates all his employees five, six, seven, right? So the best guy's getting a seven versus the best guy getting a nine. And when you want to make a decision across a broad organization, that's not really fair. So the first thing that we did was we had to normalize that data. So you essentially come up with a percentile. So what's my number one compared to your number one? And we were doing multi-rater assessments. So it wasn't just a manager evaluation. There were peer evaluations. Direct reports would evaluate managers. And so you ended up with a lot of different perspectives about a single person's performance. And backing up for a second, when we took the data, we worked with a couple really great people on the data model. And one of them, the, the advantage of being in Palo Alto is one of Harold's close friends is a guy named Brad Efron, who was head of Stanford's statistics department at the time and a MacArthur fellow studying small data set statistics, which is exactly what we had, right? So we've got not classic statistics, but five or six or seven ratings about an individual from a lot of different people. So he worked with us to say, first normalize the data 
average that. And what we found was the absolute rating matters, right? A three out of 10 is not as good as a nine out of 10, but the relative does as well. And what having multiple people on screen at the same time does is you're thinking not just about what is decision making, but you're thinking, how does Richard make decisions? And I can benchmark that against how does Jeff make decisions? And it helps me as an evaluator ground something in reality and make better decisions. And there's also an element of fairness to it. And then you mentioned kind of this idea we would call like a force distribution. Like if everybody fits into a bell curve, you can't have all tens, right. you can't have all ones. Where we ended up after lots of trial and error and back and forth and working with people is that it would be invalid to look at a large group of folks and not make decisions about who your starting five are and who's going to be cut from the team, right? You've got to be able to make those hard decisions in any organization. And it's difficult because people say, well, we only hire A's. Everybody's an A. But then you can't get anything done if you're not able to make those decisions. But we would not force a ranking. You could tie people. You didn't necessarily have to fit percentages into those sections of the diamond. But you also couldn't be flat. And what we would do is provide reports back to show where there wasn't good differentiation in the ratings and go ask the question. And you will get situations where we put our starting five all with this manager. So they're all going to get high ratings or vice versa. But it was pretty rare. And you could look at the data and, and at least ask the question of, are we making a good, valid decision? So you started out trying to solve the problem or at least make more efficient performance evaluations. But then the company MindSolve that you originally founded started doing other things, right? Like skills training and other types of management process. Can you describe the evolution from going to the performance evaluations to the other functions? Yeah, absolutely. What got us into more things was that we licensed that technology back from the company we built it for and started selling it to other companies. And what happens, I think this is true of uh, almost any startup situation, is if you go in and you help someone solve problems, they turn out to have a lot of problems and are struggle to solve them. And so they end up giving you more work. So if you look in HR, there's a bunch of different functions. There's performance appraisal, there's compensation, succession planning, learning and development. And so you do good work here and they say, well, now we want to push that data into our comp process, for example. We use Excel spreadsheets. It's miserable. We need to automate it. Can you help us automate that and just tie it right in? That was the first sort of adjacent space we went into and then kind of worked our way around the wheel of HR as customers started asking us to do more stuff. So we really grew in a direction dictated by our customers or requested by our customers. Is there an optimal size of company that's sort of like your ideal client for whom this is the most useful? Is, is it relatively small companies that for them, you're taking a huge burden in terms of HR off of their shoulders? Or, or is this ideal for a company of, say, 1,000 employees or more? I think there's a better ROI larger. And we used to talk about if you've got 10 employees, you can kind of sit around a table and yeah, do this. Go and rank them one through 10. Right? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's pretty straightforward <laughs> and everybody knows everybody. Yeah. And the value of automation <laughs> is greater when sure. the, the data gets so big, you just can't manage it. Uh, Compensation is a great example. People would send Excel spreadsheets out to every manager in the company, pull those back together copy paste. It was a huge just labor problem. Mm -hmm. If you only have a few dozen employees, anything about maybe a hundred and fewer, it's pretty easy to do. Right. Above that gets very difficult. And so some guy or gal spend their entire day just trying to figure out what everyone should get paid. Yes. You know, and that's and every good change use of their time. has to ripple around ripple to around. everybody right. versus real time. Everybody's kind of in the same data. Right. And that was a big benefit. Now you have had as an entrepreneur being in the entrepreneurial field, sort of one of those experiences that is both, I guess, a mark of success, but also a challenge. And that is 
is like a company that you helped found or mine solve mm-hmm. became acquired by another company or sold and then you became an employee from that company so you're making the transition from being the top guy to being a guy who probably has to fix a lot more of your own coffee and that sort of stuff right so yeah. <laughs> to tell us what's that like mentally or professionally how do you make that transition from being the person who started something to being the person who I feel like I should lay down on a couch for this part of the <laughs> session Richard uh, there's a lot of scar <laughs> tissue you're bringing back. I just started my clock I am billing you for this Jim. I hope <laughs> you know you. that well first I'll correct you going to a bigger organization was nice because then you actually had people who would help with administrative stuff at a small startup we were making our own coffee <laughs> we'd draw straws on who got to clean the bathroom you know the biggest thing though was the change in the level of control that you mm-hmm. have that was hard but I think as we got closer to our acquisition I was really becoming aware of our limitations which is a, a really polished way of saying I had no clue what I was doing and so we had kind of maxed out what we could do with the organization we needed more funding we had bootstrapped the organization meaning just grown out of revenue we weren't burning through a ton of VC money but we also you know a couple of guys straight out of college who had no idea about enterprise software and so we really didn't know how to sell well and we had kind of maxed out the organic growth model so I was actually very excited about talking to people who I thought knew how to run a air quotes real company there were definitely a lot of frustrations things moved so much slower I was not very politically astute at MindSolve our, our decision making model was yell at each other until somebody gave up and that did not serve me well as part of a bigger organization and then I came to find out that so uh, you're really a consultant is what you're telling you you just tell other people to yell at you and it sounds like a title of a great book or you know yeah exactly yell until you win right the, it's probably a, a bestseller but it's not a very good model I've gotten definitely better models since then. But no, and I think we definitely learned a lot post-acquisition about the corporate world, how to sell to that world. Surprisingly, there were a lot of things we lucked into doing better at MindSolve than were done at the big publicly traded company that we went into. And we found that after a few years, that company was acquired by a private equity firm who was extremely focused on operational efficiency. And we looked at massive changes to how we approached management. So that was a big learning curve. One thing that a lot of people talk about is AI, artificial intelligence, and it's going to take everyone's job, right? Is this a sector loosely described as you you weren't consultants, but basically you were helping businesses do their business better and by making the HR process across the board more efficient? Is this something that you could write into a code, right? Where basically you've now got an automated way to sort and judge employees and give them training and so on. So is this in any way going to be, or is it already being affected by AI? It is. At some total and at Skillsoft, we have AI built into our code now. Okay. And I think it's an amazing tool. I think it can help you, but I don't see it really replacing management, judgment, strategy, things like that. A good example is we use AI to look at what do I know about you? What do I know about folks who are similar? And we can recommend, for example, developmental training that's better for you than if you just did a random search and found 200 courses on management communication. We'll find the one that's most relevant to you, almost like an Amazon matching. But there's limits to that. As you know, you go into Amazon and you've bought a bathtub. Amazon thinks you want to buy five more bathtubs in the next week. It makes no sense, right? So there are those kinds of limitations. I stop at three bathtubs. I never buy that fourth bathtub. (laughs) Exactly. 
So we're not at a point where you ask Alexa what the weather is and she says, Jeff, you're fired. Right? We're not there yet, right? I don't think so. And I think there's cultural hurdles to that as well. People want a human safety net on that yep. stuff. I think the technology can get you closer to a small set of decisions mm-hmm. with good data to help you make a decision. But I think unless it's just sort of a repeatable cookie cutter kind of a problem, I don't see AI solving a what's best for the company right. or and what direction do we want to go. And it seems to be the consensus on AI is that it will take away some jobs, but it really just helps people do their existing job better because it cuts out some of that mundane data gathering, I guess, or sorting, right? right? You know, I think people never ask the question of what new jobs is AI going to create? And people think, oh, well, it's just coding AI. It's not that at all. What we saw with our technology is HR is spending 90% of their time on tactical, logistical, moving data around, not really adding value stuff. And when we can automate that, it frees up their time to do interesting things, Right. right? right? Drive the strategy of the business which then creates more work and more growth and all of that. We never really downsized HR because we automated part of what they did. We freed up their time to add more to value. To do more things, yeah. So, Jeff, now we sort of shift to the best part of the show and the one most likely to get subpoenaed in a few years. And, and that is, what were you like as a kid? Were you smart, curious, or you just someone whose parents dropped them off at the mall as fast as they could? You know, And you're Jacksonville boy as well. So yeah. tell us a little bit about growing up in Jacksonville. What were you like? What did you do? That sort of thing. Uh, I was a nerd. That kind of sums up <laughs> most of it. It's amazing how many Radio K guests describe themselves as nerds. It's got to be over 90%. So, so <laughs> just we're kinda... doing something wrong here. I, I don't know. <laughs> You're definitely hiring to a profile. <laughs> Look, that just cuts out about 20 minutes of description, right? Um, I was not at all athletic. I was super uncoordinated. I like to do a lot of different creative stuff, all the normal nerd things in terms of reading and movies and watching Star Trek. And I never really got big into the Star Trek versus Star Wars debate. Yeah, I was yeah. more of, we can like everybody. Um, <laughs> we can all get along here. We can. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Always did well in school despite myself. Yeah. <laughs> I, I never applied myself at all until I got So now you're a little bit younger than I am. What was the cutting edge technology when you were, say, in, in ninth grade? What was the thing that everyone was talking about? Can you remember? Um, or that you just had to is, have? It's horrible. What we used to do was go to the Radio Shack in the mall and they would have their Tandy computer sitting out there and you could walk up and immediately just interrupt it and write little basic programs to <laughs> scroll words at random across the screen and do stupid stuff like that. Wow. So Radio um, Shack, Tandy computers. Maybe you are as old as I am. <laughs> <laughs> you just look younger. <laughs> Keyboard built right into the right? monitor, yeah, you know, that yeah. kind of thing. I mean, that was just when Atari was coming out and, mm-hmm. and uh, ColecoVision and Intellivision and all that stuff. So that was kind of the hot stuff we wanted were just the home video games. We would spend all our time at the mall arcade, you know, right. <laughs> you know trading Re- Reprogramming. Okay. <laughs> was it a certain point in your childhood or later in high school where the idea of going into business of some sort, a kind of entrepreneur? Or appealed to you, or did you think about it? Did you have your own business, did you know, lawn business or whatever in high school, or did that come later? I always worked. I was yeah. cutting yards when I was young. I worked through high school at a shoe store. That's a nice, embarrassing podcast we can save for a later time. But I was never, I need to go start a business mm-hmm. or dream of being an entrepreneur. It was more, I needed money. So I wanted <laughs> so, it's a fine motivator. It yeah, works for it, a lot of people. It yeah. went from, you know, wanting to be able to, to play video games at the right. mall to wanting to buy beer. They're always staples of life that I needed. No, it was more about that. And I think that's one thing that served me well. I always had a decent work ethic. Yeah. I was never afraid of working late. And now hard you and come from like a family of engineers, correct? Your father uh, is a civil engineer, right? Yeah. And you have a couple siblings that are engineers? Uh, I have an older brother who, okay. who uh, yeah, designs subdivisions. Okay. All right. 
But your degree was in what? Was it software engineering? In no, my degree was in mechanical engineering. Mechanical um, engineering. It's okay. back to your question of wanting to start a business. Now, I, I <laughs> thought I'd go into engineering, and I used that approximately zero days after graduation. So, <laughs> so you graduate your mechanical engineering degree, and what did you do? Well, I was working uh, part time for some folks in Gainesville doing software development. That's ah, okay. what got me into software. All right. And then when and, I and what, again, what year are we talking about here? I started working with them in 90, and I graduated in 94. So software was still kind of in its infancy in terms of... Very much so. Right. Yeah. I mean, we were writing really rudimentary code, but also doing really neat stuff. We were doing Mm -hmm. three-dimensional models and walkthroughs of of hotel ballrooms. Okay. Um, Really, really neat stuff. And when I graduated, we had been developing some software that we decided to take to market. So that was kind of the first startup pre-MindSolve, which was a, a big failure, but fun. And so I had this offer to come be employee number two, working out of a defunct dentist office in Gainesville. And my other offer was a company that was in the Fortune One at the time. (laughs) And so (laughs) uh, those were the two ends of the bell curve. And I said, well, I'll go give this a shot. And if it doesn't work out after a year, I can go back to being an engineer. Um, And I did that, these little one year, I'll just give it one more year for quite a while. And and that led to today, basically. Yeah. So that was the last time I got a job was straight out of college. (laughs) Okay. Well, hope you've uh, worked on your resume recently, (laughs) right? Yeah. Yeah, There was not a lot of planning involved. This was not a, this is what I want to do with my life. There was a lot of being open to stuff and working really hard and people going, hey, come solve this problem for me. Well, so that's kind of a nice segue into my next question is asking you your words of wisdom. And maybe you don't have any words of wisdom, Jeff. I don't know. But most people do. or They make it up on the spot. But let's say you magically encounter the, the 22-year-old version of Jeff Lyons, probably in the arcade at the video games. But what would you say? What would you tell him, aside from always wipe off the fingerprints? What would you say to that person? You know, it's funny. I'm really of two minds of it because I think I've had a really fun life. I think it's been really rewarding and I've liked the journey. But there's a big part of me saying, don't do what I did. (laughs) I mean, we made like every mistake you can make. I was very lucky to have great mentors and advisors early on, right? Even though one of my co-founders, Dan and I were sort of straight out of college, our our third co-founder was a guy who had been an entrepreneur for a long time, was able to give us great advice, was a a very calming influence on a a couple uh, idiots straight out of school. So I did have that, but I still think just get more advice of people who had done it There was no real startup community in Gainesville. Mm -hmm. Um, As you said, software and the technology. There wasn't a startup uh, community until like 2006 or 2007, right? There was nothing. (laughs) You you waited a long while. This was before the dot-com boom. I mean, there there was no model. And so we were just kind of making it up as we went along. And our story is great and it sounds fun and everything until you realize that we had a competitor of similar size that we had better technology, but they knew how to sell things Mm -hmm. and were connected and, and invested right. And that company later sold to SAP for $4 billion. So I probably would have preferred to run that company, um, all things being equal. <laughs> so Well, then you wouldn't be in a booth with me. You'd be on your private jet somewhere, Jeff. So let's just be honest here, right? <laughs> so we probably tried to do things too much on a shoestring. Okay. Um, I think being well-funded, especially now, is even more important. Mm-hmm. So that's a pretty easy lesson to share is don't be afraid to give up a little bit of control mm-hmm. to people who you'd benefit from them having right. a little bit of control right. and, and who can bring a lot of funding and not suffocate the business? Well, it's interesting because you, you hear a lot from other people saying, give up control, any control at your peril and don't take any money because they'll, they'll take over and so on. But it's an interesting counterpoint that that may limit 
a lot of what you can actually do. Right? Yeah, very you much. just don't have the resources. Yeah, very much. And I've seen the downside of that as well. Mm-hmm. The other thing I'd say is more on a personal level versus a professional. For me, coming out of engineering school and, and just being a, a very technical-oriented type of a person, we joked around before about kind of the communication style and, and the debate style that decisions got made. But in reality, it took me about 10 years to realize that other people have feelings and that most people don't enjoy vigorous debate as much as I do. And that, I think, held me back from being an effective leader for a long time. So to somebody who can recognize that handicap in themselves, paying more attention to the people side versus the technical side will serve you very well. Right. Well, Jeff, my invoice for counseling is already hit probably about $1,000 here, so we're going to have to wrap this up. But Jeff Lyons, author of the soon-to-be-written book, Yell Until You Get What You Want. Jeff, thanks very much for coming on to Radio K. To wish you all the best in your professional career, and I look forward to having you back on the show. Richard, it was a lot of fun. Thank you. I'm Richard Miles. Radio K would like to thank the following people for their help and support. Liz Gist of the Cade Museum for coordinating inventor interviews. Bob McPeak of Hartwood Soundstage in downtown Gainesville, Florida for recording, editing, and production of the podcasts and music theme. Tracy Collins for the composition and performance of the Radio Cade theme song featuring violinist Jacob Lawson. And special thanks to the Cade Museum for creativity and invention located in Gainesville, Florida.